0: Hello and welcome to the Redaction Politics Show. I'm your host, Declan Carey, and as usual, I'm joined by James Moles, our contributing editor, and Mason our reporter. Guys, how are we doing today? I'm not doing too bad.
1: Uh, one thing one thing I just had to do to prepare for this podcast, though, was Nigel Farage recently tweeted, the silent majority has begun to stand up against this cultural Marxist revolution in reference to like the BBC and the prom plans, and obviously mm-hmm. um, people have been... Backrashing against him, saying, you know, cultural Marxist is an anti Semitic conspiracy theory. But in order to try and find this tweet again, just to look it up for this podcast, I had to Google Nigel Farage cultural Marxist. I dread <laughs> to think what watchlists lists I'm about to end up on now.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, like, you know, it, not explicitly, but like, silent majority is also like incredibly fascistic rhetoric to use. Oh, yeah. There's a massive number of people who. secretly agree with you, but
0: they're too afraid to say it because they've been silenced by some power from above. What is it with cultural Marxism that people on the right seem to be obsessed about? It's a really weird thing that is kind of really vague and meaningless.
1: Well, there was a similar original with the the original Nazis. What was it? They called it cultural Bolshevism. Yeah. And um, basically this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that there's this group of uh, left-wing Jewish intellectuals that are trying to undermine uh, their culture, undermine, you know, the German race, the German Ubermensch, as they would call it. And you see a similar thing today, which gets, you know, it gets dog whistled as undermining Western culture. In other words, yeah. know, we know what they're getting at.
2: Attacks on culture are really easy to like sort of dog whistle about because there's pretty much no material reality to them. And therefore you can make them be whatever you want them to be.
0: Yeah, well, if you're listening today for the first time, we don't always start with reference to Nigel Farage, so don't worry too much about that. <laughs> oh, I'll
1: I, I tell you what I saw earlier. I think there's something like a stream Nigel Farage and Douglas Murray are doing. I'll just see if I can find that. But I just thought earlier, I would rather remove my own fingernails with a bottle opener than listen to that.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, before we get into the main show, there's this one thing I wanted to, to bring up because you probably saw the really sad news which was the death of Chadwick Boseman recently? Um, I mean, what a what a big loss that has been. Some an actor who made a made a big difference with his films. Um, I was really shocked and saddened to hear it. I don't know how did you guys feel about it?
1: Well, it was heartbreaking. Obviously, he's obviously he was Black Panther, which is a film that's inspired so many people. Um, <laughs> he played um, Jackie Robinson, didn't he, in the film Forty Two. Yeah, that's a great um, film. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, massively talented actor, really heartbreaking loss that he's been, he was aged 43, only 43 and died of colon cancer. I mean, what more can he say but rest in power? Yeah, I was
0: really surprised how long he had colon cancer for because he'd made quite a few films whilst having it, which is just an unbelievable thing to think about. To record a film, shoot a film, alongside having treatment for that is such a, a difficult thing to go through so yeah we've really sort of lost a gem with that one
1: and of course he had been well, he, well he, i think it was 2016 they said he'd had it since i mean that means he'd have been shooting hmm. black panther when he knew he had colon cancer
0: yeah exactly exactly so really sad to hear about that um all right then what kind of things have been in the news recently guys that have caught your attention i mean uh in um in my timeline
2: uh, there's this is a bit speculative but like i've been seeing a lot more coverage of you know the BLM riots over the past week because obviously yes. there's been there's been both another police shooting and another uh, active shooter attacking the protesters and the way that i've seen coverage of both events being covered i am increasingly worried that the tide is starting to turn on public opinion turn which way uh turn against the protests so like obviously there's a massive amount of momentum behind them but i think there's an increasing amount of rhetoric going towards uh the idea that or you know an increasing amount of pushback i guess against it uh so i pulled up in preparation for this a tweet from the times describing the kenosha shooter who shot three people and killed two of them as A uh, quote, uh, quoting the exact words, he was a bullied teenager who revered the police and found purpose as a vigilante. That isn't the normal rhetoric that's used to describe a mass shooter. That's the rhetoric that you use to describe a martyr. The tweet they put out didn't even describe him as the shooter. It just describes that he was being charged with murder after two people were killed in his vicinity. And I don't think this is an isolated case. The Daily Mail ran an article about how Joseph Rosenbaum, uh, before being before having his lung perforated by the shooter, uh, was caught on video saying the N-word. And, you know, while they'd never be as overt as to say he deserved it because of that,
0: they're willing to let the implication hang there for an awkwardly long time. Yeah, of course, the the shooting of jacob blake right in wisconsin who was shot seven times in the back oh uh, there's a video online about that and i I watched what happens in the moments before that happened and it's really odd because it it just doesn't look like there's any intention that anything violent is going to happen apart from the cops who are following him and have guns pointed to him and i just can't help but feel that if that was in the uk it would have been de-escalated in some way that well, it would have I mean, been calmed down before it got to that point.
1: Look, <clears throat> most most police officers in the UK don't carry guns, they carry tasers. And there are plenty of clips out there you'll find of police tasing people, especially mm. people of colour.
2: That that's true enough. I like the police in the UK have their own issues. I think that, you know, uh w- like it might be relatively de escalated, but mostly just because UK police have to account for every bullet fired.
1: You'll forgive me for bringing this to the 2020 election already, but how do we feel that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is going to impact on this? Because one thing that I'm getting the impression might well happen is that Trump is going to turn this into a law and order election.
0: Yeah. And frame um, it
1: largely around that.
0: Yeah, I think Trump will will try and use that to his attention. I think he'll try and, as Mason was saying, try and focus on the negatives of that, which is kind of a natural thing for him to do. It's almost a terrible thing to do. But I think with the Democrats it kind of, I hope that there'll be members within the Democrats who realise the importance of what's going on and use that to push members who often don't get opportunities, you know, to to speak at conferences, to put themselves forward to be elected. I hope that they will get more of an opportunity because of that, that would be a great thing Mm. Um, because I think it's not going away. Yeah, it's a very difficult situation to navigate because Trump is able
2: to play, you know, the law and order card to his advantage. If the Democrats play it, they alienate the massive number of people who do still believe in the protests.
1: Yes. Yeah. And those are votes they can't afford to lose.
0: Yeah. James, Especially, how are you feeling about um, Joe Biden at the moment? Because he's still doing quite well, right?
1: He is still doing quite well in the polls. I've seen some predictions from five thirty-eight, who, you know, There were issues with their predictions last time round, but they still got it the closest. They were the ones who gave Trump the best chance of winning, and he did. And in the previous two elections, they got it pretty much spot on. Um, They're putting Joe Biden as the favorite to win. I think I will just look it up while we're uh, talking, but I think at last count, they had him down at um, about 70% chance of winning, which is roughly what they gave Clinton on the day of the election, to be fair. But I do think... Biden is still the odds-on favourite. In my view, I'd put it somewhere like 55-45, or maybe even 60-40 in favour of Biden. It's going to be far from a far from a landslide, but I think Biden is the marginal favourite still. Mm.
2: Yeah, I'll agree with that. I think Biden's, you know, are, like, notionally ahead. I also think that, you know, uh, the longer he's in the public spotlight, the more public support he hemorrhages, (laughs) which has sort of been visible for a while now. Uh, his strategy in DNC primaries was largely to keep out of the spotlight and let his campaign team, team handle it. Is that because Whether they'll I, work against
0: Trump? Because Trump is really good at attacking him. Mm, yeah, sleepy Joe. Yeah, like I, it, it's got a lot more punch to it than uh, what was
2: it, Mr. Tweety? <laughs> is that what he called Trump? Uh, some something to that effect.
1: What was, what was it he was calling Bernie? He was calling him Crazy Bernie, wasn't he? And then, of course, Elizabeth Warren was Pocahontas, There's... which is a problematic nickname on so many levels. Um,
0: Clinton you know, was the be... crook. Crooked yep. Hillary. that was it. Yeah, gosh. Um, there should yeah. be a museum for this Trump attacks. There probably is somewhere to be.
1: What were the other ones? Lying Ted, Little Marco. You know, yeah. You know, he's good at coming up with those small insults and what can I say that's part of what his appeal was in 2016 to so many republicans Mm. is that this was too too many politicians were too airbrushed too seemingly civil and he was just sort of the republican party's id in human form
0: here's a here's a question would joe biden stand a greater chance of election if he from now till the election only tweeted in all capitals
1: i'd like to see this but he, he's, he's hes doing his best to sort of present the image of being back to business as usual i'll be a president who looks out for the people sort of thing mm. yeah i mean that that's kind of his message is this will be a return to business as usual i'm not sure how many americans are going to get behind that but hopefully it will be enough i mean i'm not a big fan of joe biden myself he was of the major Democratic candidates who actually stood a chance of getting the nomination, I think he would probably have been my bottom pick. Okay. At the same time, he'd be infinitely less bad than Trump. And as we said in a previous episode of this podcast, it'll be far easier to move the Overton window to the left under Biden than it will be under Trump. Yeah. I don't buy the whole line of another Trump term will bring on the revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I just don't buy that. Yeah. Uh, I don't have
2: the numbers in front of me, but from memory, didn't Bernie perform better after Obama than he did after four years under Trump? Like, uh, just in terms of voter shares in
0: the primary. Could be, yeah. I think I've heard that as well, yeah. Mm. Okay. It's one Uh, thing
1: interesting, uh, sorry to just go off on a tangent again, Uh, interesting about Bernie. is, I heard this statistic, this might need to be verified, but... I think I'm saying Bernie, this time around, was the only candidate, at least in recent years, maybe ever, to win the first three popular votes in all first three primaries. Oh.
0: Hmm.
1: He won the popular vote in Iowa, even though he was tied with Buttigieg for... Was he tied or Buttigieg slightly edged it out in um, delegates? Of course, he won New Hampshire and then he won Nevada really convincingly. And at that point, it looked like, no, Bernie's got it. He's a shoo-in at this point. It hmm. to lose, but then somehow Joe Biden pulled it round.
2: I mean it's it wasn't Bernie versus Biden though, was it? It was Bernie versus everyone else in the Democrats wearing a trench
0: coat with Biden at the top.
1: Yeah, basically. With the possible exception of Warren and Yang and Marion hey. Williamson.
0: James, are you still updating your your predictions for the elections on reduction with state by state? I did recently, yes.
1: Um, yeah. I actually my most recent update, I actually gave Biden an even bigger chance of um, winning than I did before. In fact, I made a slightly bold prediction in that I, this time around, I, I might have just been being contra here, but I predicted that um, Biden will flip Georgia. Okay. And that what? was my bold, my bold prediction because the polls are pretty close there. And I remember in 08 everyone saying, no, there's no chance Obama will flip Indiana. And then yeah. it happened. And if we're on for a similar sort of victory for Biden, I can see it happening. I'm not seeing it happen with Texas, to be honest. Mm. I And it would be a massive moment if Biden did flip Texas. Well, how, how is
0: Florida looking as well? Because that's, that's a lot of points in the Electoral College, isn't it?
1: Well, that's the exact point, isn't it? Because of the five that yield the most points, what is it? California is the most solid Democrat. Texas is the second most, which is usually Republican. And then it's, was it? New York, Florida, and Pennsylvania, is it? or is it Illinois, the next one? But, I mean, most of the rest of them are solid blue. Florida, of course, is a swing state. Um, and if Texas becomes competitive, then the Republicans have none of those top states under their belt.
0: Yeah, so for any of our, our listeners, make sure to check that out. James is keeping us updated with the election. Not long now. It's in November. So, yeah, give that a look on redaction politics.
1: It's It's the day before my birthday as well. Um.
0: (laughs) So hopefully we can give you a nice birthday present and Trump will be elected out how nice would that be?
1: Oh I know right.
0: (laughs) Another four years of the God Emperor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay um, another thing I've been seeing popping up recently is the government trying to look at how we're going to move forward with Covid, trying to suggest that people go back to offices and that university students perhaps go back when terms start Obviously, there are big fears about what that's going to mean. Lots of people mingling in offices and, you know, Freshers' Week, can you imagine? All the all the mingling in student unions and halls. I just can't imagine that's going to be very good. What do you make of that?
2: It's a terrifying thought. Uh, last, I like, I checked the statistics on it this morning. Our number's still above one. We've yep. got more cases coming in today than we had at the start of the month. <clears throat> and under those circumstances... Like, this was the condition that we were given when we were told that the economy would be reopened. We were told that it would be conditional, checked at each step along the way to make sure that the R number stayed below one. It immediately went above one. The government started uh, meddling with statistics, uh, misrepresenting data. And all of a sudden, we're not seeing any of that rhetoric anymore about, well, you know, let's, uh, let's continue practicing our proper safety procedures. Let's monitor the process at each step. None of that's happening. We're just being pushed back out though.
1: And one thing we've seen recently, there was a poll just out yesterday that for the first time in a while now, uh, it was tied in the opinion polls, 40-40.
0: Yeah, I saw like that. Labour is now
1: caught up. Obviously, it's too soon to read into that. It's just one poll. Never read too much into just one poll. Polls are only useful when considered in terms of trends. But, you know, we can live in hope. Obviously, I think that at the moment, the thing to consider with Labour at the moment is that this is clearly a bad reflection on the government. I've still not seen Keir Starmer do that much, to be honest. I mean, I mean Starmer was in favour of reopening
2: the schools.
1: And I think he still maintains that, am I right? Unless somebody wants to correct me on that.
2: I've not, I've not seen that statement be retracted, but yeah. it's been a few weeks since I've seen any headlines on it.
1: So, I mean, look, Starmer seems to be... We'll get onto the whole issue of the left and optics at the moment and whether people on the left can get better optics without selling out on the issues. Starmer is somebody who is a case of all optics, no substance.
0: Is it is it the case that we might see that, though? I mean, he has been there for a few months now. And to be fair, it doesn't seem like much has happened. Of course, they had the government U-turn. Well, we've had many government U-turns, but the ones typically on free school meals where Marcus Rashford, of course, helped out. That was quite a big thing.
1: I was about to say the real leader of the opposition there was Marcus Rashford.
0: Yeah, yeah. He did well there, like fair play to him. But I don't know. Are you hopeful that we're going to see more from Starmer? Because I'm kind of hoping that we will soon. I'd I'd really like to see some ideas out there. Look,
1: I I want to see Starmer do well. I really do. He wasn't my pit for leader, but I still want to see him do well. I want to see him succeed. I want a Labour government. At the same time, he's not filling me with optimism at the moment. Like I say, he's clearly got the optics down to a T. He's, even though he, he looks almost stereotypically like what you'd expect a politician to look like, the sort of, he's yeah. got a nice suit, a smart haircut and whatnot. Um, yeah. Who better to yeah. bring
2: back the working class voters in the North than a lawyer from London?
1: Who is a literal knight
0: yeah <laughs> yeah there's some problems with that aren't there yeah i don't know maybe that's what voters want but i'm, Although, not, I'm
1: not convinced i mean let's be reminded that the northern heartland's foot to the Tories under old Etonian and alexander boris de feffel johnson man of the people so mm. you know i think Keir Starmer is to that end it will be perfectly able to win back the northern heartlands on optics grounds the questions whether he manages to on policy
0: yeah I, I i don't know i wonder how i mean obviously the conservatives in in the previous elections have positioned themselves as anti-establishment haven't they which is i mean such a bizarre and odd thing of course they wanted to do that to win and they wanted to do that to show that labor are the elite but i mean come on look at look at the people in cabinet look at the prime minister what what I mean, more privileged background could you be from
2: like that, that's, that's been the line for the past, like what, two decades? Uh, we need to work hard to undo the damage of the last Labour government.
1: I think one of one of the key people we've got to consider in this picture of the Tories trying to present themselves as anti-establishment is uh, Dominic Cummings. Oh God. Who's,
0: yeah. consistent,
1: who's consistently run sort of anti-politician messages. I mean, you might've seen that speech where he gave where he was literally lambasting the Tory party saying, yeah, these people don't care about the NHS. Yeah, He clearly has quite deep, deep disdain for politicians themselves, and attacking the professional political class worked well in their favour in the 2019 election, where when Labour came out with a second referendum policy, they could then attack Corbyn, who was seen beforehand as Mr Anti-Establishment, as having sold out to the establishment and say, look, he's just like all the rest of them, he's now subservient to Brussels, we're the anti-establishment really.
0: Yeah, and that, that's kind of the battleground run, isn't it? But, I mean, yeah. Cummings is, is a figure who, what he did in breaking the lockdown, and I know he, he had an excuse that he wanted his children to be in a safe place because he was worried that he had contracted the virus, but, I mean, come on, you know, driving yeah. into Durham with, with bad eyesight, I mean, how, how ridiculous can it be? Yeah. I mean, I see- Well, like
2: we're, we were told that, you know, he's doing what any rational father would do, but we're also being told... That a rational father trying to seek a better life for their kids should be blown out of the water by the United Kingdom's Navy. Yes. It it's a complete double standard.
1: Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, on the subject of Cummings driving though, I mean, do we need to does it really need to be said how irresponsible it is to get behind the wheel if you think your eyesight might not be good enough to drive?
2: I, I don't think at this point I don't think there's anything new we can say. I don't ha- I don't actually remember what the name of the scandal is, was called. Was it Cumgate? Yes. OK. <laughs> <laughs>
0: is
2: not really what it was called.
1: Oh, yes. I saw that trending on Twitter at the time. Hashtag oh. Cumgate. Uh, of course.
0: <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we know what kind of effect that's had. Um, I mean,
1: of course, Benedict Cumberbatch played Dominic Cummings in that film Brexit, the uncivil war. And they're two people who were definitely teased at school for their surnames and for very similar reasons.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um. All right then. Well, I mean, what? Uh, obviously, we're we're on the we're kind of on the topic of optics now and, and how it looks. I mean. Yeah. Do, do you think the left? Do you think like, the left? Left parties. You know, I mean, I suppose in the UK we're particularly looking at the Labour Party. I mean, let's let's maybe start there. But do they know? Do they know the image that they give out to the world? Do you think they're aware of some of their the things that people throw at them or do you think they just genuinely have no idea how the world sees them? I think we're more talking
1: it's less a matter of the Labour Party now than it is sort of people on the sort of the the bona fide left not people sort of centre-left social liberals sort of people on the hard left I think do have a problem with optics often I think we did see that to an extent with Corbyn I mean Cor- Corbyn was great on policy, but he was probably literally the poster boy for bad optics on the left. Yes. Mm. I mean, he looked like a scruff, wearing his beard, turning up in his miner's cap uh, demonstrations before. Obviously, he didn't yeah. do that when he was actually leader. Glasses so always slightly off. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, of course, when he opened his mouth as well. He, mm. didn't sa- he didn't sound like a conventional politician. To some people, that was his appeal but I don't think it was enough to enough people. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then there's the other optical note that, you know, uh, whenever a prominent leftist comes forward, whether it's Corbyn or Sanders or who have you, uh, we're consistently told that, you know, like uh, whatever fans they do have are a cult personality, right? The Bernie bros, the Corbynistas. And I often
1: think, I often think the hardcore Blairites who call Corbyn, uh, corbynism or cult of personality really do lack some sense of self awareness there.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean that's got its own problems, hasn't it?
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, a- according to uh the league's WhatsApps, uh all of us are charged, aren't we? So Okay, well how how have the Conservatives done it better then? How how have they managed to successfully convince the country that they are anti establishment, that they are the voice of the working people? How how the hell have they been able to do that for so long when it's quite obviously not true? One word Brexit. Mm. Do you reckon that's what it comes down to? Uh, largely, I think, yes. Brexit
1: was portrayed as a sort of... It was a once-in-a-generation chance to, you know, send the proverbial middle finger to the professional political class and to the establishment. People took it, and therefore it came to be seen as this anti-establishment message. Whereas remained ran very heavily on, <sighs> oh, yes, the, econ- the economic fallout is going to be terrible, you're going to lose your job and whatnot, if... It was just a very eat your vegetables campaign was a main campaign. It was very poor. Yeah. Um, whereas Leave had a very clear message. It was take back control. Arguably, it was always framed as being from Brussels. But I think it went deeper than that. I think there was an extent to which it was take back control from the professional political class. And I think that played into a, the um, played to the sensitivities of a lot of people. Mm especially those who were traditional Labour supporters but felt abandoned by the Blair government.
0: Yeah, I think those those traditional Labour voters that you mentioned really had nowhere to go in that election, did they? Because on mm. I mean, the whole issue of Brexit, many of them wanted to leave, but didn't know whether to look at the Labour Party, who, who struggled, didn't they, to be quite honest, with what stance they wanted to take. There was a lot of internal fighting on that. There wasn't ever really a clear position the Conservatives perhaps benefited quite a lot by having their kind of you know the, the euro skeptics take control at that moment, and then there was only ever going to be one strategy for them, and yeah. that seemed to be the one that worked. I think that's one very important point that we do need to include in our discussion
2: of optics because the veto are a lot better at falling in line Yes. like it has to be sad yeah well
1: we just we saw that in the election. Brexit party yeah. withdrew in favour of the Tories. The Lib Dems and the Greens and Plaid Cymru and the SNP and Labour were a, a mess. The,
2: the Lib Dems explicitly went on the record to say that they wouldn't ally with Labour under any
1: circumstances. It's almost like the, uh, the Lib Dems were more interested in stopping Labour than they were in stopping Brexit. But that's a discussion for another time. But of course, the Lib Dems had the alliance to remain with the Greens and was it Plaid Cymru but not the SNP? I think I'm right in saying. But um, no deal was worked out with Labour. The Brexit Party did it off their own back. It wasn't a deal with the Tories. Well, maybe there was behind closed doors, but it wasn't on the record. So, yeah, you're quite right, Mason. The right are far better at getting a rank and file when the time needs to be.
2: Yeah, uh, we do need to include to some extent. You know, th- there is there is still internal opposition, but it's a lot more subdued. Uh, I mean. Within, within the House of Commons, like Boris Johnson basically took down every MP that wasn't willing to stand behind
1: him. And it yeah. shows now. I mean, Boris Johnson achieved in four months what Corbyn have failed to achieve in four years, which was to completely reshape the parliamentary party in his own image.
2: Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, the circumstances of both are obviously not the same, right? Corbyn doing it, it would have been a media scandal. We'd be told that he was conducting Stalinist purges. Uh, thought-policing his own people, when 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 Johnson does it, it's uh, kicking out the
1: elitists. I mean, I often say to people, imagine the different reaction from the press if it had been Corbyn that had unlawfully prorogued Parliament and lied to the Queen. But I think this is um, an important point to make, is that part of the thing the left has to consider with optics is that they do get held to a different standard from out, by outsiders.
0: Okay. What do you and mean
1: that's by that? One... Well, like we say, if Corbyn had attempted something like that, Stalinism would have been invoked. When Boris Johnson does that, a lot of people just get behind it and say he's trying to do the best thing for the country and the party. Mm. They do get held to different mm. standards. And we've got to work with that rather than just moan about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, I, I think it did, I think they don't help themselves sometimes with that. I think you're absolutely right about it, but I think... We we you know we've spoken about it before on this podcast about John McDonnell's little red book and things like that, which doesn't help with the image, right? I mean that's just completely shooting yourself in the foot, setting yourself up to be completely slandered. And as we saw, whether the Labour Party thought, you know, okay, we can deal with this, they clearly couldn't. They they clearly lost a lot of public opinion, and Corbyn just ended up looking like a nutter, frankly, didn't he? I think I think when McDonnell did that, what it largely did for a lot of people was
1: just confirm what they'd suspected about Corbyn and Macdonald. I mean, if you're, if you're being portrayed as a radical leftist, as a Stalinist, as a Maoist in the press, and you want to disprove that, the way you don't do that is whipping out Chairman Mao's little red book <laughs> in the House of Commons during a budget debate. <laughs> what were you thinking, man?
0: Yeah. I know, James, I know that you, uh, you, you, you quite admired Corbyn, I think, for... For a lot of reasons right how how for you did that kind of feel when you know we we saw them kind of pull out must come out with mistakes like that and really it felt to me like they undermined themselves in a lot of ways that must have been incredibly disappointing
1: i mean in hindsight now well it's not even in hindsight i do agree with that to an extent i think myself included a lot of people felt the need to close close ranks around corbin and mcdonald because he was the best chance we had Corbyn was an imperfect vessel for progressive change, but he was a vessel nonetheless.
0: What, what lessons can can Labour learn from the Conservatives at the minute? Because whether we, whether we like it or not, they've, they've played the game well and they've managed to convince or they managed, perhaps, perhaps not anymore, I don't know. Let's see what you think about that later. But they certainly managed in the last few elections to convince the electorate that they're the ones to vote for, they're the ones who are going to sort the country out, get Brexit done, off with the establishment, Labour Party, if that makes sense. Um, Are there any hard lessons that Labour and the left can learn from that? I mean, I think the biggest lesson that I could
2: give would probably be one that requires me to use a lot of uh, ultra-rhetoric, so I hope you'll excuse that. We need to learn how to hide our power levels. Uh, That's basically it. Uh, it's an expression that's used a lot in all-tribe circles. It references Japanese children's cartoons, but all of that is secondary to the actual purpose, which is don't don't open on your most radical position. Like, let's,
1: let's, let, let, let's not bring it back to the Deng Xiaoping quote of hide mm. your strength and bide your time, because that would be bad optics <laughs> too, wouldn't it?
2: <laughs> it would be, which is why I'm going for the anime reference. <laughs>
1: mm.
2: But, well, you know, one. Uh, uh, when a member of the ultra goes to their day job, they're not chatting with their, co- they're not checking with their co-workers about their desire to build an ethno state while having their swastika tattoo rolled up on their arm. They use dark whistles to signal intent to each other uh, when they're certain that they're speaking to an ally. Uh, and it's only when they're confident that they're among people who agree with them that they're willing to start bringing out the literature and joking about gas chambers. So we need to be better about deciding when to be upfront about what it is that we want to do, and when we need to present ourselves as more moderate and liberal.
1: I think there was an extent to which Corbyn and Sanders were already doing that. I think, I think the platform Corbyn presented in 2017 and 2019, and the messages on which Sanders ran in 2016 and 2020, were both probably not as left-wing as those two men's actual personal views were. Yeah.
0: So they were already holding
1: back. Yes. Um, one problem with the idea of hide your power level, though, is what power level? Do we actually have one at all? Mm. I don't see it as much as the alt-right. I really don't. And I think a, a lot of the left-wing base is yet to properly organize. I think I'm seeing it start to happen. I think there are figures like AOC who are very encouraging. but there's still a long way to go and in both the uk and uh the united states the hard right is considerably more powerful than the left
2: i i think you make a good point there you know like uh organization on the alt right you've got massive forums like stormfront and 4chan uh work because they've been pushed out of all the other spaces there are a very small number of very large communities where these people are able to organize from basically a single playbook meanwhile the left is made up of something like five thousand uh 20-person Discord groups uh, that every so often
0: we'll schism into two 10-person Discord groups. Yeah, uh, it, funnily enough, I, I was speaking to our North American correspondent, Scott Custon. We, we did a podcast episode a while back about the future of the left in, in Canada, and he made a very similar point that what's happened in the left is it's become more fragmented over time and much more difficult to unite and become uh, become one solid block who can challenge government, are we seeing the same thing then in the UK at the moment? Uh, is the left just not able to come together, and if so, how can they go about doing that
1: to be honest, I think it is to a lesser extent in the UK, partly because we do have a centre left party that is the second party that has historically been a socialist party so it is a natural home for people on further to the left, even when the leadership is more quote-unquote moderate.
2: And that said, how I'm many wondering. members has it hemorrhaged uh, uh, like recently after the Labour leaks and other scandals? Yes.
1: Well, yes, that is a problem, and Starmer is going to have to face up to that. And look, my personal view is, I know this obviously won't happen, but if Starmer really underperforms at the locals and the London mayor election next year, I think he should go. Mm-hmm.
0: Would you not give him if longer just, to have a chance to implement what he wants to
1: do? I mean, I could get salty and say they didn't give Corbyn much of a chance before they tried to oust him. But um, no, I mean, I, do, I really don't think Selma is the right person to lead us into a general election. Imagine if he's up against he's, he's pretty bland, pretty boring. I don't see that going down well on a general election campaign trail. I think the polling at the moment is more a reflection of how bad the Tories are than how good Labour is. I yeah. would like I would like uh, Lisa Nandy to step up as quickly as possible.
0: Oh, as leader? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: I mean, she had my vote this time round, even though I had supported the old man before. I didn't give RLB my vote. I gave it to Nandy.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she's she she speaks well, Lisa Nandy. I think mm. I think she's done a good she's job.
1: A, she's an excellent communicator, which I think is my main reason for backing her and she is you know she's progressive enough she might not be where we'd want her to be but she's better than Starmer I mean Starmer was just so vague on the issues it's hard to know where he stood at all
0: yeah and I think one point we have to mention about Lisa Nandy it's blindingly obvious but she's a woman and that's one thing the Labour Party have not had yet and a woman of colour yep is a female prime minister so I mean well, that that surely can't hurt Labour's chances at the moment, because well, it feels to me that a lot of the country are kind of really, really hoping for a woman to lead the Labour Party, not just any woman, but like a woman who can really bring us power. to power.
1: To be honest, at this point, I don't think the electorate even thinks about it, whether it's a woman or not. Yeah. I, I do think we know. need so to I be careful there. I think we've completely broken that glass ceiling, to be honest. Nobody mm, yeah. was talking about Theresa May's gender at all during the 2017 election.
2: There are a few, uh, there are a few Iron Maiden comparisons.
1: Well, okay, fair enough.
2: Uh, but you know, I, I do think this is something that we do need to navigate with a bit of care, because you know, uh, as was mentioned in the episode about Canada, one thing that caused a lot of people to become disillusioned with the party was the idea that it was focusing on on uh, EdPole to the exclusion of important policy and economic positions, and I think that that is something that. Very potentially could become a slam dunk gotcha if uh, you know we present ourselves as fielding a woman because she's a woman. Yes, it, yes. it's Which a very is, easy point of attack by the right.
1: There was a there was always that among, with Hillary Clinton in 2016 as well, but um, yes, you're quite right. I think the bottom line is I I I can't be doing with people who say we should ignore identity politics at all. Obviously, identity always inform someone's politics and their lived experience that's yeah. inevitable there are oh, two yeah. points to make though um one is we can't ignore class politics yeah. which i think is an integral I mean, part of that which we have ignored. Class as an identity exactly yeah. second of all when we talk about identity politics let's face it we're talking about a very narrow definition of it we're basically talking about the woke left as people will call it the sjw's that's mm. what we're talking about that's yeah. the image it comes up when we're talking that, about identity uh, politics
2: we're talking about the mythical enemy that more or less doesn't actually exist. It was always something yeah. of a straw man.
1: Exactly. But I mean,
2: we do need to we do need to take care to avoid, you know, giving ammunition to people who use straw men against us. It, even if we recognize they're wrong, it's something that can be used against us.
1: I mean, if you've been to a college campus in this country uh, and been involved in student politics, you would you'll know that there are some people like that caricature who do actually exist. There mm. are some of them, yeah. but they're in a
2: possession of power. actual power.
1: Yes, Yeah, that's true. And most of them, especially, I mean, most of them tend to be relatively middle-class people who will probably be voting Tory by the time they're 35. It's a non-issue.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, it tends to go that way, doesn't it? And one of the issues with optics is of course age. It's a big dividing line in Britain. I mean, all over the world, right? but in Britain especially, we've got a big issue with age. The old, older generations are significantly much more likely to vote conservative, significantly more likely to bother to go to the polling station and vote. That obviously is a problem for Labour. They've just not been able to get through to those voters and that's holding them back. What is to be done with that? I mean, definitely, like it's something that we need to tap into. Uh,
2: YouGov polling from this week showed that uh, pretty much every every working age demographic is against return is against returning to uh, working in person. Yes. The only group that is still in favour are retirees. Yeah. But they're also a very large voter group, and at the moment they yes, hold because, a lot of power.
1: because they're considerably more likely to turn out to vote. Hmm. That's the bottom line. Um, look, I've said that several times in, over the course of these podcasts is that as of now, the left has to be a youth led movement, youth led, even if it's going to appeal to people slightly older. It has to be led by young people, because young people are the ones who are most affected by unaffordable housing, by the COVID recession and the financial crisis. Most young people at the moment have always lived in a time of economic downturn and by the climate crisis and of course young people also
2: young people are also very important demographic in our activist space yes
0: yeah i mean i think that's definitely true and young people have a, a uniquely set a unique set of problems these days i mean god especially with coronavirus i mean look at some of the experiences people have gone through at university at school this generation is uniquely positioned to the campaign for, for, for better, for more. To be honest, um, than I think other people experience. However, if young people are not going to vote, how can that work? I mean, how how can Labour be a youth-led movement if there's a minority of young people who are getting involved, and the rest of them are not getting involved? It just seems to me that that can't work. We need to work beyond the
1: framework beyond the framework of the Labour Party as well. Yeah. We need yeah. youth-led movements, youth-led socialist movements that are going to go out there and connect with people. College campuses are a good place to start, but not everyone goes to university. Yeah. We need people at workplaces. I mean, we need unions to encourage younger people to get involved more as well. To I mean, borrow a, a point from the
2: current crisis, mutual aid groups. Yes. Uh, yeah, there are, there are so many young people that are currently getting getting involved with volunteer organizations because of, because of the crisis. And I mean, I look the fir- like the first thing I saw when I joined my local mutual aid group was that they had a pen message at the top of their group saying no politics. So, you know, sometimes there are barriers to what you can do, but obviously it's still incredibly effective.
1: Well, one thing I often say if you, is if you want to get somebody to fundamentally change their political worldview, you can't just argue with them about it people don't change their viewpoints like that. It's kind of got to be gentle suggestion. It always makes me think of the film Inception, where they have to, incept it. I don't, have you guys seen this film? Yes. Yeah. I, I know the trout. Where they have to convince the person that they came up with the idea themselves. If you want to convince somebody to fundamentally change their viewpoint, that's kind of what you've got to go for. It's got to be ever so subtle suggestion to make them think like that.
2: Yeah. Stochastic, but uh, yeah, a sort of stochastic method. Well, I mean this sort of ties back into the higher high power level thing, don't, don't slam people with just like raw rhetoric or literature,
0: You uh, have the them, <laughs> <of> them <laughs>
2: provide, provide them the tools to
0: analyse their own situation. Yes. Is, is, is um, employing Ben Shapiro as uh, Labour's the man the answer?
2: We saw how I mean, well we Andrew to, co- do performed in the we BBC interview. Yeah, do we have to answer that? You don't. To,
1: yes, in that BBC interview against that well-known leftist Andrew Neil. Yeah. <laughs> you know, honestly, Andrew, if you're if you're if you're just going to be as badly motivated as this, I think I'm going to leave. Okay, I'm out. Yeah, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, gosh, I remember that. Yeah, brilliant TV though, mate.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, ben, ben Shapiro has said, even though he talks very quickly and confidently, it's always the point that gets made. He actually manages to say some colossally stupid things in spite of that. Yeah. Possibly one of the biggest examples that H. guy <laughs> tackled in his video on climate deniers was when he said um, people who are at risk of flooding due to rising sea levels can just sell their homes and move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a colossally yeah. stupid point. <laughs>
2: I mean, the mo- the most recent like uh, Ben Shapiro news has just been his uh, his criticisms of, I mean, oh, user, a W-A-P- right? the, w-
1: the WAP, mm. <laughs> yeah. the, yeah. the wet ass p
2: word. Yeah. <laughs> and I I mean I think that I think I think the most effective method of battling these people who talk is just laugh them out of the room.
1: Yes
2: then Shapiro thrives from people who try to go up against him with the debate-me-bro tactics because he controls the microphone and that means that he always has power in that situation. Yes. If, you, if, you, if, if, if you instead just share a bunch of Facebook memes laughing at him and talk about how colossally stupid he is, then not only do you combat his rhetoric, but you also just sort of make it more socially unacceptable to be one of his fans, which, you know, also has a profound impact on uh, how effective he's
1: able to pay. Yes, completely agree. One of the big examples also there is Dave Rubin, who, although he, I mean, he just kind of makes his own parody. He's just such colossally thick things. When you get intellectually outmaneuvered by Joe Rogan, you know something's wrong. (laughs) Have Have you seen that clip where Dave Rubin's talking about construction regulations?
0: I haven't
1: where basically he says um, words to the effect of well why do we need construction regulations we could, uh, we could think of an idea where you get rid of construction regulations but because everyone's got their iPhones these days and if people got caught doing bad work <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes yes Dave the solution to making sure Grenfell never happens again is to um, give the builders a bad review on Yelp I think that's the
2: solution <laughs> Yeah, crushed by a girder 0 out of 5 <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maybe that's the future. <laughs> oh yes, okay. Um, I mean, one of one of the things that I think people like Ben Shapiro, the, the right online, and even in mainstream politics, throws at the left is the idea that um, the left are full of snowflakes who can't who, who can't handle the the reality of today. They're, they're too yeah. soft these days. I mean, what do we think of that? I mean, is is that a truth that the left needs to sometimes say? Okay, perhaps, perhaps with some issues, the left is a little bit too, um, I don't know, is being a little bit too soft on. Or is that complete nonsense?
1: I don't think it's entirely untrue. In terms of the softness and snowflakery, I think the right are equally susceptible to that. Look at the Trump baby balloon. In terms of, I think one point that is fair to make is that the left can sometimes have a sort of holier than thou moralising attitude and be very dismissive of people who... um, aren't ideologically pure which again the right can do that sometimes the difference is a lot of their values are more uh values in inverted commas are more sort of conventional wisdom shall we say yeah. is seen as more socially acceptable to moralize about those things mm. whereas with leftists um some left some versions of leftist morality which are not necessarily as ingrained or even are completely new it's harder to do that and not come across as um you know up your self-moralizer yeah well i think that would be the debate around vegetarianism mm.
2: um, yes it is like it is, it is incredibly unethical to eat meat i still enjoy burgers what can you
1: do yes but when you get people who are vegans who sort of constantly go on at people and you know it's a it's a it's an exaggeration but it's not that much of an exaggeration to say it happens when you get vegans like this Mm. Who will go on at people? They're like, that's not you're not helping yourself by doing that. Veganism isn't mainstream enough yeah. for you to be jumping down people's throats like that.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes but, just showing people, like setting the example and not explaining everything you're doing is the best way to do it. I'm a I'm a veggie myself. I um I think this is something which often comes up when we go to a restaurant or something. People always ask, you know, oh, are, you, are you a veggie? You're not eating meat. I, I find like when you don't mention it, people tend to ask you, which is fine. And then yes. sometimes people do ask you to explain why. Why don't you eat meat? And, and you know, I think that's fair enough. But, but yeah, I think that issue of holding them now, trying to explain to someone why what they're doing is wrong, is just a way to push them further away rather than making them more inclined to agree with you. Yeah. Agreed. I
1: mean, I'm a pescatarian myself. And oh, right. often, more the time you'll find is you'll sit down and say, wait, you're a vegetarian? I had no idea. That's often how people find out. Yeah. But mm. the sort of people who do shove it down your throat i mean they definitely they definitely exist
2: yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just coming to the slowest realization that i'm the biggest meat eater in the sa, uh, in the skull. <laughs> yeah i think a large part of like the you know uh the, the snowflake criticism does go back to idpol mm-hmm. right because the stereotypical sjw is uh you know uh let, 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 let's see what buzzwords we pro- like uh would probably be attributed to them. Uh probably rainbow coloured hair, probably overweight. Uh uh you know, you know, for for maximum snowflake uh for maximum snowflakery, uh they, they are also transgender, which is perfectly valid, but a, a point of critique by the right. Uh you know, uh there there are so many things that uh they are able to just sort of use as cultural slam dunks because they only recognise Paul when it's idpol out of their own group. The right, the right never, like the right never complains about working class Ed poll or white nationalist Ed It's only when it's women and minorities.
1: And there's, uh, there's definitely a class of sort of centrists, centrist liberals who go on about how they're against the loonies on both the left and the right, yet spend ninety nine percent of their time attacking the left.
0: That, that's yeah. an odd kind of thing, isn't it? I don't know why they do that. Why do you think they do that? Why are they taking the left? We it's don't all, see the atmosphere almost, around us.
1: It's almost like these people have more of a problem with the left, yeah. is the reality. Hmm.
2: I, I think the centrist idea is that you've got, you know, uh, I guess, what in, to to be the holy than thou academic who's introducing leftist jargon into the discussion, the centrist viewpoint tries to take a view from nowhere. Where they just remove themselves from the situation, look at both sides, that side bad, that side bad, and then say they must be the same. Their, f- their view from nowhere, though, is actually a right-wing view. Hmm. It's just that you know society is society is so far to the right that the centrist position feels like it's. Uh, I mean, the right-wing view feels like a centrist position.
1: Yes, I think that um, on the subject of academics leads us on to another point I'd like to make, which is jargon and yes. the way the leftists talk in a lot of language now this is not i can stupid. show myself out oh yes <laughs> you know i uh, i'd write a review of the uh uh the movie parasite uh a dialectical analysis in a systemically neoliberal and equal society yes um <laughs> you know what i mean yeah people will often use this language that you know just makes them sound completely bonkers to yeah. what the right might call normies—the alt that is.
0: Is this an online thing, or is this in? Does this happen in in the the real world as well? Because what happens online, I've seen it. Happens
1: in academia for sure.
0: Yeah, but <laughs> academia mean, definitely has an issue
2: of looking very academic.
1: Yes, and look, pe- people like Jordan Peterson talking a lot of jargon. Again, this is where there's another double standard. He's somebody. Yeah. I mean, look, it's hard to say where Jordan Peterson really stands because he's often very wishy-washy. But he I mean, we have the to the kill job. the chaos dragon.
2: It's that simple.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, the, the postmodern neo-Marxists are all about subred- Yeah, you know what it is. Yeah.
2: But when Jordan Peterson talks about, you know, the Jungian
0: archetypes, it's seen yeah. as uh, whimsical.
1: Yes. It...
0: Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me that that's more of an online problem, though. To be honest, I, like I, I, t- I totally see what you mean about people like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro attacking things like what neo, what do they call it, neoliberal Marxist, postmodern oh, Marxism. Is postmodern like Marxist. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what does that
2: mean? But like, it means words I dislike.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I don't, I don't really see that in real life. Like, I wouldn't say that Jeremy Corbyn spoken jargon. I mean, it seems quite uh, an online thing. So is that, I don't know, is that really something we can criticise?
1: I think so, because I think the online struggle is, especially among young people, is equally as important a part of it these days. Yeah, yeah. The online world is becoming
2: increasingly real. Yes. And I do think that there are also elements of academic jargon that do sort of bleed into our day-to-day conversation. I mean, I've I've seen people talk at length about how we need to fight for better rights for the GSM community, and never actually remember to include the little asterisk that mentions that GSM refers to gender and sexual minorities, and that's a more inclusive way of saying LGBTQIA+. Plus because it doesn't occur to them mm. uh, if you're if you're permanently operating within these circles, you forget that the language
0: you're using is completely unintelligible to anybody outside of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that's quite a difficult thing, I think, to to speak clearly and be really clear with what what you want to do to, to voters as well, you know. I mean, again, just kind of going back to Labor, the Labour Party, I mean, look what they failed to do with the whole Brexit thing was get a clear position across. So perhaps whilst not being jargony, perhaps being unclear with position, perhaps not taking a position, is is a big of a problem. And and now I think about it, I mean, we we've spoken at the beginning about Keir Starmer who I mean in In three, what, four months now, five months perhaps, what what has he really achieved, what kind of policies is he putting forward, I don't think we could say much about that, so perhaps that's a form of jargony kind of way of answering a question, or not answering a question, that is hurting the Labour Party right now. I'm entirely expecting
2: that when Starmer comes forward with anything that resembles a policy proposal, it will have been run through so many focus groups as to be Completely meaningless.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not promising to vote Labour in 2024. Oh, that's a big thing. I'm not. I uh, was it was it Rachel Reeves? I think I'll look this up again while we're here. But who said? I think in 2013 something about tougher on benefits than the Tories, and she's now chanc- uh, Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy. If that that's... sort of policy turns, in, uh, sorry, if that sort of rhetoric turns into policy, yeah. what are we for? Mm, yeah,
2: yeah. Like, are are we the red conservatives or are we blue Labour? Because those seem like the two dominant voices that are trying to sort of depose the leftist star uh,
0: position of La- in Labour. Well, here's an interesting one then. So, if if there is a if it is unclear at the moment where the Labour Party sits, where where do you think it will look to go under Keir Starmer? I mean, I know we're not probably expecting. Um, you know radical socialist policies I think far from it but what direction and what policies do we imagine Keir Starmer and his team might want to introduce? Sorry just to
1: say yeah here it is 12th of October 2013 the Guardian headline Labour will be tougher on Tories than uh, sorry tougher than Tories on benefits vows
0: Rachel Reeves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah. So that that's playing up, isn't it, to that, that that whole idea of populism that we need to be tough on benefits, and that wins elections, rather than winning elections with your own ideas, that's following another yeah. path which you, is not traditional for you. We're you not
2: gonna be different. we're not gonna be able to beat the toys at being the toys. And even if we did, what would be the point? Exactly.
1: There's a, di- there's a difference between reaching out to people who disagree with you and pandering to them. Yes. <clears throat> And you'll never, like Nathan says, you'll never beat them at their own game if you do pander to them. Because if you just do that, we saw this in 2015 with Ed Miliband. I actually really like Ed Miliband. I think he's a great guy. And I think he probably wanted to present a more left-wing platform then. But at the same time, they just ran the austerity-like platform. And, you know, if you're presented with that choice and you say, okay, it's the Tories or somebody basically doing a tory lite let as well vote for the Tories.
2: Yeah. Who drinks diet coke?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a really good way to put it. I like that. Yeah. So, I mean, c- coming back to that that issue, where do we see Keir Starmer going? I mean, what direction do we think we will see? And is that the right one?
1: I honestly don't know. I mean, yeah. that's that's always been the thing with Keir Starmer. I just don't know. Yeah. Um, we'll know when there's
2: more polls and uh, focus groups available.
1: Please put me on the focus group. Um, (laughs) Keir, if you're listening right now. Yeah. um, Yes, it's going going to be more difficult. Look, Keir Starmer obviously was Shadow Brexit secretary under Corbyn. And obviously, as a result, played a large part in the party's Brexit stance in 2019, which I think we can all agree was a complete disaster, even if we weren't going to say it out loud at the time to people we wanted to convince so um yeah i mean if that's if that's where we're starting with policy look do we think that the northern heartlands are going to have forgiven our brexit stance in just five years there are plenty of people who still i know plenty of people who still say they can't vote labor because of stuff Blair did.
0: Mm. yeah there's a long trail to these decisions aren't there which continues to affect parties um yeah, I, I don't know. One thing that concerns me a little bit about Starmer, and I think he is a politician where image is very important to him. I think you can tell, I think Jeremy Corbyn was, was really less concerned about it, you know. We, we saw how, I think James, you said he, he looked a bit of a scruff at times, and I think he wasn't that bothered about it until someone, probably his advisors told him, look you need to be if you want to win. I, but, there, was a, there
1: was a private eye cover during the leadership election where it was Corbyn like in his straw hat and a vest And the quote caption was i love marks it's where i get my vests i'll see if i can find it
0: yeah but with starmer it seems to me that he's very much like aware of the image he presents and that is potentially a problem again you know coming to that issue of pandering to what the older voters want perhaps that could be an issue yeah one
2: thing that I think that Starmer will be able to do a lot better than Corbyn is that is going to bend the knee when it comes to the media and when it comes to Murdoch. And that's yeah. going to buy him a lot of points. Like, we're, we're, we're never going to see... I don't think we're going to see any, like, panorama sections where the background is just Starmer with a Yushanka photoshopped on in front, in front of Kremlin.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was... I mean. Oh goodness, was that, the, was that the BBC
0: You did that for journalist. I don't believe it was the BBC. Yeah,
1: did you get a lot of Ofcom complaints?
0: I believe you did, yeah. I, I mean,
1: I mean, fairly say so. that's 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 not objective balanced journalism,
2: yeah. But I mean, damage is done by the time Ofcom does anything, right?
1: Yes, well, exactly. And
0: does uh, does Labour need to cozy up to the press in a way, like in the way that perhaps Corbyn didn't do very well? Is that I the think answer? Wh-
1: I think one of two things has to happen. Either Labour gets cozier with the mainstream press, or we create a new media that is big enough to rival the mainstream. And to be Speaking honest, of,
2: uh, remember to subscribe. Uh, if you can, <laughs> purchase a <up> on Patreon. <laughs>
1: Well, I was just going on to say, actually, to be honest, I think my preferred route at the moment is the latter. And I'm not just saying that because I co-edit redaction, yeah. but...
2: We we do need dual power structures that we are able to leverage ourselves. We'll never yes. be able to go all the way if we have to bend the knee to Murdoch.
0: Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I don't know. I, I kind of think that the papers do have a lot of sway, and I, I think it would be not the right solution to just you know follow that path and just say okay play up to the newspapers of course that's not the right way but i think there has to be some there, there need to be positive headlines because we saw how important that is we saw how corbyn was was just attacked and dehumanized every week almost in the papers and what that did to him you know we can't have a repeat of that surely yeah Cor- corbyn came to power with massive pu- public uh,
2: public appeal and that all just hemorrhaged slowly over time as all of these hit pieces were put out against him. We can't underestimate that.
0: As I'm always, I
2: have to sort of give like the... Sorry, I'll let you talk in a moment, James. I have to give yeah. like my old bog-standard speech about how we have to push in all fronts at all times and not give ground anywhere. I'm pretty sure I've used that line three or four times across the uh, lifespan of this podcast, but it continues being relevant.
1: Yeah, I was just coming on to it. There's a headline on the Sun. uh, Thursday, I've got it on my computer here. Thursday, 5th of September 2019. It's a picture of a chicken with Jeremy Corbyn's face superimposed on it. And the headline is, this the most dangerous chicken in Britain? (laughs) Moments like that you just think the British press really isn't normal. It really is. We we had an
2: election decided on the viability of the different candidates sandwich eating potential.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I
1: mean, it was There was, there was clearly. Look, with Ed Miliband yeah. there, there was also clearly a, an anti-Semitic undertone to that. Mm. Yeah. Like, there
0: were other
1: elements too. Of course, can't, can't, you, can't you eat a bacon sandwich like a normal English person? Was also part of the
0: yeah.
1: subtext there. Yeah. Let's mm. be clear.
0: Yeah, there's something darker going on beneath these headlines, isn't there? Sometimes, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I already know the answer to this, but that's that's not a uniquely British thing, is it? I mean, of course. There are there are just as many media organisations <coughs> in the United states who would perhaps do something equally as ridiculous, no? Yeah.
2: I mean, I think I think Fox and Friends are you know the, uh, the good example of this. Uh, they're also very good at presenting themselves as a, as a centrist platform when they have to because they've got I don't actually know how many it is different talk shows where they'll say Ah oh, yes, uh, here's a left leaning person and here's a right leaning person and then they'll have a, a uh, you know, polite and balanced discussion between a moderate liberal and a neo-Nazi.
1: Well, yes. Yeah. Um, I noticed, speaking of neo-Nazi, I had uh, to take this on a slight tangent. Did, is this actually true? Was this fake that Richard Spencer has endorsed Joe Biden? I'm not
2: sure. I, I, I saw something Trump about Trump? this. It does, seem, actually, it does seem like Spencer's trying to rehabilitate his image. Because you know he's 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 been a laughing stock nobody ever since like the Octave speech got leaked by I believe Milo Yiannopoulos did it. So definitely there are sch- there are schisms in the right. Uh, there are I mean this is Spencer trying to play the optics game. So there, there's there, there's a point.
1: Well, of course the right in America had a massive optics disaster. I'm sure you both know what I'm talking about. Charlotte. Charlottesville. Yeah. Charlottesville, of course, yeah, when yeah. there were people literally turning up with like confederate flags, were there even some with literal Nazi flags yeah. going yeah. Th- marching through the streets of Charlottesville sh- chanting, what was it they were chanting
2: uh I, I I mean, blood and soil was one, uh they will not replace us was another both of which Nazi yeah. slogans,
1: exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah. Am I right in thinking there were reports of um, Roman salutes? At that?
1: Yes. Quote, unquote, Romans. Well, was that that? I mean, there probably were. I saw, um, obviously, when Richard Spencer was giving that speech just after um, Trump got elected, where he was, what was he saying? Hail Trump, hail victory. And there were people pulling, like you say, <clears throat> Roman salutes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not good. To bring it on to a slightly more cheerful topic, though, this isn't strictly politics, but have either of you guys seen Tenet?
0: No, but I saw you went to the cinema yesterday, so I assume you went to see it.
1: I did go and see it, yes. Um, because I was thinking with that, um, have, have you guys both seen The Dark Knight? Yeah. Obviously, another yeah. Christopher Nolan film. I've not, seen, that, I've not it, seen the last one. Okay, because that film... Does sometimes feel weirdly politically prescient i was actually talking with a friend about this recently that how the character of the joker almost seemed to predict sort of 4chan culture
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah
1: like i'm not a monster i'm just ahead of the curve was one of his lines.
0: yeah no i can definitely see that i yeah. mean, I, I think
2: i think there's a there's a little bit of circular logic though because i definitely think that you know uh for like for 4 chan I mean, obviously, they're not a monolithic community, there's different subgroups, but definitely the political factions of fortune have always admired the Joker as a personality. There are a lot of comic book fans on the site, and they sort of let that bleed
0: in. They like being seen as the edgy madman. Yeah, and there's a tortured soul behind that, isn't there? Usually.
1: Well, there are always people who, like, fantasize about being a tortured soul, aren't there? Mm. It's kind of an appealing, especially to sort of I mean, you know, lonely young men. That's that's the also why Marvel
2: Batman movies. comics sell. You know, a yeah. uh, tortured billionaire dresses up as an animal and beats up poor people.
1: Did you see Did you see that uh, trailer for the new Batman film? I haven't seen it. I Ro- with, Robert, with, with Robert Pattinson as um as Batman, who has come now come a long way from being in Twilight. I'm not going to lie, he's in tennis as well. Yeah. And yeah, I mean. Robert Patterson and Kristen Stewart are two people who are actually both very good actors who just kind of got associated with Twilight for so long, for obvious reasons. But I think they've both you know, rehabilitated their image now, much yeah. like Daniel Radcliffe has. But mm. Daniel Radcliffe had to go and play Alan Ginsberg to distance himself from Harry Potter.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, kind of on that note, one thing I want to touch on is... We spoke about the kind of tortured soul, perhaps Mm. far right kind of figure. You know, they're they're definitely out there. And we have to say, when we're talking about optics, we started with Nigel Farage. And I (laughs) I want to kind of bring you around a little bit because on Twitter, he's been doing quite well, one might say, in drumming up attention over a particular issue. And that's, of course, the issue of asylum seekers crossing the Mm. channel, which has been going on for a while and is not something which has radically changed however in recent weeks that's been an issue which he brought to the forefront of attention um so they he seems to be doing that quite well um you know the kind of crisis situation that he's kind of put himself in i don't know is there anything the left needs to learn from from that well
1: the rhetoric he's been putting out there has been very toxic and dangerous to be frank he's referring to it as an invasion yeah Mm. Invasion. That's the rhetoric he's using.
2: Yeah. I I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's the kind of rhetoric that the left can really harness well because you know uh like uh when when a right wing person uses that kind of rhetoric they're a fascist. When a left wing kind of person does it they're an eco-fascist. Like I mean we've seen we've seen what happens when the leftists place the extreme we need to act now card. Uh, i we've seen it because Extinction Rebellion has had horrible optics and has more or less single-handedly brought down harder protest laws on every other type of public assembly. Yeah,
0: that's a good point.
1: And Extinction Rebellion have been creative with their protests, but they're terrible at getting people on side. Like, don't glue yourself to trains. Don't stop people getting to work. Yeah. You don't want to be targeting your protest against the average Joe. Target the billionaires. Go yeah. and block up, Go and block roads in some rich part of London. Don't block the tube. Would be my advice to Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. Target yeah, your there's... protests against the people who need to be targeted.
2: Mm. Now, I, I guess you know to some extent the argument could be made. Uh, I'm pretty sure the word Extinction Rebellion protests are blockade in Heathrow, which I think probably a lot better than blockade in public transport. Agreed. But You know, uh, again, I guess that's that's another point that we do need to address and one that we sort of touched on when we were talking about BLM at the start. Leftist protests always get more media coverage when they're
1: mishandled. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, Black Lives Matter actually gave me some optimism to start with that we're actually learning how to do proper organized protests in this country, which we've been terrible at for a while. Just walking down a street, waving a couple of placards, not crossing the police line and going home. That's not a protest. Hmm. That's just walking through the steps. That's not doing actual protest. Look at Paris. Look at Hong Kong. That's how you do protest.
0: What do you mean specifically?
1: Cause actual real disruption.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not not to people, but if you can
2: avoid it, but uh, things that will actually be felt by the establishment infrastructure exactly. harm uh get journalists on site like i mean okay i i don't know how i don't know how many like uh hong kong protesters have been black out after journalists stopped showing up it's been going on since march of last year but during the like during their heyday the hong kong had so much
0: international support yeah i mean one one point that's worth making is that Protest, which goes further than the the sort of marching on the streets with placards, is often portrayed extremely negatively. I mean, I I went to the oh it was an anti-Brexit one a few years ago now in London, and it was it was very sort of safe, it was very civilized, very friendly. Um, people were walking, they were singing, you know, carrying placards um, through central London the whole day and it was pretty well received when I read the papers the next day it was pretty positive there were nice sort of images there and I think back in my time to the tuition fee protests in that would have been 2011 when they announced that tuition fees were going up and I if I recall rightly the Conservative Party HQ was attacked in London and the images were completely different and I think it undermined the whole point of it. Because it just looked like, well, look at these angry students smashing up buildings. You know, no, no wonder we should triple tuition fees. Whereas the anti Brexit one came across in a much better way. And I think that's a point that's worth making with these issues. Yeah. But what did uh, the anti
1: Brexit one achieve?
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, neither of them achieved much in the end, to be honest. Yeah. Let's face it. But the, that mass protest, uh, anti, that People's March protest, what was it, last year or slightly the year before, perhaps? I'm struggling to remember. The massive one. Yeah, got massive turnout but achieved nothing. Why? Because it was completely toothless. Mm.
2: I, another example that I think we can pull up is the junior doctors' strike, because that was you know uh, pretty much as harmless a protest as they come, but it still got slammed in the media because there was such a there was such an easy line of attack to say that mm. just the idea of doctors going on strike is going to kill patients. Yeah, it's such a powerful image to evoke. Yeah even when, you know, uh, they tactically schedule their protests to cause minimal disruption and to make sure that there was minimal loss of life.
1: There's always a certain group of people, though, who will attack protests, whatever it is. They'll say, they'll attack the riots in Minneapolis and say, no, do more civilized protests. Colin Kaepernick takes the knee. No, 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 not like that.
0: Hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, is, maybe is, that's it, it, gets to,
1: it gets to the point when you think these people, their issue isn't the protest itself; it's what they're protesting. Yes. It's a Musk flip moment.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people. Yeah. I, th- I think people like that. You know, they they don't dislike they don't dislike the protest for the methods. They don't dislike the protest for the motivations. They dislike the protest for reminding them of its existence. Yeah. Correct. I think the majority of people. We'll agree. It's a bad thing for police to kill black people. But, I mean, they've got shit to do. They they, 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 they don't want to hear about it. Uh, it's,
1: kind to... of, it's
2: kind of... Sorry, it's yeah. kind of the
1: same uh, with Empire. Just to borrow one last name,
2: yeah. They just exactly. want to grill.
1: It's kind of the same with Empire in this country. Mm. Like, people, people don't want to have that illusion shattered of Great Britain with Great In... Um, bold and italics yeah they want to be able to sing rule britannia at the top of their lungs which by the way was a fake controversy they reason they're not singing it is due to covid restrictions not due to political correctness but that's a conversation for another time yes when george um not george floyd's statue uh, edward colston's statue was toppled in bristol i mean i think most people would agree that in this day and age by the standards of today we shouldn't be putting up statues of slavers but it just, okay. it serves as a reminder, it opened a conversation about the less savoury aspects of Britain's past, that a lot of people don't even know about, let alone mm. um, want to be reminded.
2: And I think an important point on that is that, you know, like, uh, just to sort of bring it back to the idea that, oh, why don't they use the more peaceful channels? They have, they like, attempts have been made for years to get that statue and others like it taken down.
1: Yes. And, you know, that's been happening now. We've seen it with Cecil Rhodes, too. This motion's been passed to have that statue removed. At the same time, the right have weaponized that to make the entire debate about statues and about, quote, unquote, erasing history rather than about, you know, the death of George Floyd and systemic Mm. police brutality and the legacy of empire, which is what it was about in the first place. Yeah.
2: Do we need monuments or do we need monuments to oppression to be maintained by the state in a public space? Is the question that we ought to be asking, and not whether these statues should exist in the first place. Stick them in yeah. a museum for all we care.
0: Or just throw them in the river.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think I saw once it was thrown in the river, people jumped, people were trying to bring it out, weren't they? Did you see that? Uh, yes,
1: there were like some uh, yes. Mm. Some blokes try to jump in the river afterwards and fish it out. Yeah. That's right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, I I think one thing that I found incredibly interesting around, you know, the statue debates is that it's not the first time we've had this debate in this country. Uh the I, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the brown dog riots. No. Okay. A very obscure piece of uh scientific history here then, because uh it was an anti like uh, anti-vivisection protesters paid to have a statue put up in a public place to commemorate a dog that was dissected in, I believe, uh, University College London. Mm-hmm. And medical students would vandalize it. Then they'd try to tear it down. statue had a uh, 24-hour police protection place on it. There were rides for years around this statue that was literally just like a little metal dog with a plaque saying, guys, uh, can we stop killing animals, please? So, you know, like, Obviously, the the right isn't opposed to taking down statues. They're opposed to having their statues taken down. Correct. Yes.
1: Though oh, it it's st- it's still never fails to get to me when sort of those right-wing protesters were turning out to defend the Winston Churchill statue while pulling Nazi salutes. Yes. Mm.
0: It's not quite the right way to go about it.
1: No. I mean, to be fair, that's an optics disaster for the right, and it was an optics disaster for the right. Everyone was mocking it. At the same time, when it takes pulling a literal Nazi salute to be an optics disaster for the right, I mean, that's a pretty low bar.
0: Yeah, but I see it doesn't tend to impact, for example, the Conservatives too much when that happens, because I think it's often associated to the far right, which is then pushed on to, for example, I don't know, like, you know, Britain First or, you know, these kind of groups, the English Defence League. Yeah. That- these awful kind of organisations, and it's, it's often kind of pulled away from the Conservative Party, so they don't really suffer too much when that happens. Yeah,
2: the okay, old slide will exactly credit
0: it to the far
2: right, who credit it to 4chan, who claim that it was a false flag by a WAPO journalist.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, we do definitely see these online cultures bleeding into reality, though. Classic one is that okay sign, you know, the sort of, that is now white power. And that supposedly was just a joke to start with on 4chan. I mean, then if you if you use it as a joke
2: long enough, that white nationalists start using it as a white power sign, then yes. Yeah, that's what it becomes.
1: Wasn't it the Christchurch mosque shooter who, when appearing before court? It was. Really? Yes. Wow. Didn't know that. <clears throat> yeah, of course, that's that's another news point to discuss, isn't it? Because he just got life without parole. Yeah. I mean, a, what, do you, what, do, what do we make of this? I mean, what is there to make of uh, such a brutal massacre? But I mean,
0: yeah. was anyone
1: surprised at that ruling?
0: I mean, not not really. I mean, I think the issue is, isn't it? People talk about, you know, some people say we need something more. We need to bring the death penalty for people like that. And I'm not convinced it's the way. I I, I don't think it's the way to to implement mm-hmm. justice, just to end someone's life like that. And and plus, uh, just from a moral point of view, if there is one, but does the state have the right to do that? I think if we give the state yeah. the right to take someone's life, that gets a really murky road to go down. So mm. Agreed. It's also I agree. martyrs um, Yes. Yeah. But I mean, no matter what, these people get
2: used as symbols. I'm pretty sure that the Unabomber still receives fan mail. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean. The two arguments for the death penalty that would actually make any sense, even though I disagree with both of them, are the two ones that are worth taking considerately are the deterrence argument and the argument that what's the point of locking them up for life and you could just kill them? And wouldn't that save the taxpayer? When, you know, it costs more to maintain the death penalty. We've seen studies, it costs more to maintain the death penalty than it is to keep people in prison for life. And I think given how many people do get put to death, I think it's fairly safe to say that it's not a sufficient deterrent and yeah. when you could, in theory, uh, execute an innocent. Mm, we've we've yet,
2: yeah. we've yet we've to see anybody yet. We've we've yet to see like anybody in the mass shooting journals say, you know, uh, I would have been deterred if there was slightly stronger conviction uh, regulations on how they would punish me for gunning down 20 people
0: in a public space and then taking my own life. Yes. Yeah, it, it almost glorifies it in a way, isn't it? I think as well, I think that having that kind of final end in a weird way, some people might see it's as a kind of glorification of what they've done, you know, they, that's the last thing they're remembered for. Whereas if they're in prison for their whole life, last thing they're remembered for is being some sort of pathetic killer who, you know, just became old and frail and did nothing in their life. So I think got well, any... I mean,
1: exactly that. What do we hear of Anders Breivik anymore?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, there was that film that came out about him. Mm-hmm um was it last year or the year before in fact there were two films Mm. weren't there there was the Mm. um the Paul Greengrass one and then there was the Norwegian one um but yeah I mean that Mm. was the first time i would heard about him in years when those films came out yeah the the only
2: similar figure that I can that I can think of who does still receive like a lot of attention in prison is Ted Kaczynski and that is just because his manifesto was so widely spread and
0: his case was almost a predecessor to the modern mass shooters yeah yeah, and the film's pretty good as well, and I think that drums up a lot of attention around that, you know.
1: Mm. Yeah. Of course, uh, one of course in internet culture, one there is one shooter, of course, um, who does de- generate a lot of attention and sort of, and um, you know who I'm getting at is Elliot Roger. I and mean, what do you guys make about the sort of cult around him?
0: I'm not too familiar with it. So fill me in a little bit with it.
1: He's basically the incel hero. He's the guy who made these weird rambling videos about how he was complaining. He's like this rich kid who was complaining that girls don't like him and then he went and This uh, now is a down not at all. Yeah. <laughs> and went uh, and went and did a did a mass murder. Mm. Yeah. That's his story. But then the incel community love him. Really, or sort of love him in a weird way, you know.
0: I mean, that,
1: that's it's, it. It's weird, yeah. the incel community.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm. I, yeah. Like, uh, just to sort of bring a background to a cultural argument, I think that the best way that we can sort of uh, that we can sort of deconstruct the cults around these people is to disprove their arguments and to just viciously mock them for how incompetent and stupid they are. I mean, uh, pretty much every World War Two movie ever made to depict Hitler has been used at some point as Nazi propaganda by Nazis, even when that's not the intent. But you know, there are there are two movies that that does not happen for one is the producers and the other is Jojo Rabbit. Uh, I mean, no, nobody in Charlottesville was saying springtime for Hitler. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) Yes, indeed. Okay. On that note, guys, uh, we're running out of time, so we are going to wrap it up. Thanks a lot. That was really interesting talk on optics. I'm curious to see where Labour goes, where Keir Starman goes. It will be very interesting. So um, let's see what happens. Uh, Sort of speaking on the subject of optics, this is going to be the first Redaction
2: podcast to include video, which I think means that we do need to sort of include something for the people who watched all the way through. So I don't actually I haven't actually planned this far ahead of my own setup, so I'm just going to dab at my camera.
0: <laughs>
2: there you go.
1: I, I just realised my uh, my barbell is just visible so that That's that's your treat from me. <laughs> well, and also if you want to uh, want to know, that's a balalaika. There you go. Can you play it? No, it's uh, it's old and crusty. It would <laughs> the, the strings would
0: snap if I tried. well that's definitely worth watching all the way to the end so if anyone has watched all the way thank you very much and yeah as Mason said this is our first YouTube episode so hopefully we bring in a lot more and hopefully you enjoyed this let us know what you think about it and let us know what other topics we could bring up all right guys thank you very much for your thoughts today and we will see you next time bye